The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. That means that we have to make sure that we've kept short accounts on sin, confess our sin if necessary, to uh, in privacy to God the Father. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's just a starting point. Just because you confess your sins doesn't mean you automatically grow. Growth comes as a result of the study and application of God's Word, not merely just because you have confessed your sin. Uh, that is a status position. It is not a momentum position. And it is the position from which growth occurs. So we always begin class with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we will get into our study of Judges. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have you to come to as our ever-present source of help in times of trouble. That no matter what takes place in our lives, we know that you are fully aware of and have been fully aware of every situation, every circumstance, every, every source of prosperity, every source of difficulty that we face from eternity past. And you have provided the solution for us so that no matter what situation we may find ourselves in, we can continue to handle that on the basis of your spiritual provisions that we have through our salvation and through God the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills us. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you will challenge us by these things and that we, can, uh, we will be enabled to see how these things apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Now, as we have examined Judges, I have shown that there are basically three divisions in the book of Judges. The first division extends from 1-1 down through 3-6, and this entails the... Uh... Now, I know we have a rookie upstairs. Cut the fan so pages of my Bible don't blow. Okay. Judges 1 1 down to 3 6 is the introduction. This sets the theme of this book. And 
the orientation and summary of what is going to take place in terms of the cycles of discipline and the problems that are going to uh, plague Israel because they fail to apply doctrine. They reject the Lord and in His place they turn to idols. There is always that option. When God is removed, the only solution then is idolatry. You do not go into some position of neutrality. There are only two options. Now, because uh, Israel rejected God and replaced God with idol worship, today we may not replace God with uh, external concrete idols of wood and stone, but we certainly worship more sophisticated idols of the mind. We, you know, in the New Testament it says that materialism or greed, materialism lust and money lust, is, uh, is idolatry. Whenever you substitute anything in terms of its priority in your life, whether it is sports, whether it's family, whether it is uh, your job or career or education, whatever it is, when anything becomes of higher priority to you, at that point you are in idolatry. This may occur on a daily basis for some people. It may occur on a weekly basis. But at some point, we all make the uh, error of failing to live up to the ideals of our priority, the doctrine is number one. And when we do that, and God is no longer number one, then at that point we have succumbed to idolatry. Because Israel succumbed to idolatry and did not turn back to the Lord in terms of confession and true, genuine repentance. And remember, repentance does not mean to feel sorry for your sins, to uh, have remorse, or anything like that. It means simply to change your mind with the result that you change the direction of your life for the most part. And in this sense, they would have, uh, instead of forsaking God and turning from God and serving the idols of, of Baal, Baal worship, they would have uh, turned from the idols back to God and sought to go forward in their spiritual life. As a result of that, we saw that God is going to discipline Israel, starting down in 2.20. He describes that process, and he uses the phrase in verse 22 that he will no longer drive out these nations that had inhabited the the land um, before Israel in order to test Israel by them. So these nations are now going to be a source of testing for Israel, this is reiterated in uh, down in chapter three, verse one. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Now the Hebrew word that is translated "test" is the word "nasah." Looks like this in the Hebrew. N-A-S-A-H, and that final H is silent. Now, Nasat means to test. It can be translated a trial. It means to prove in the sense of demonstrating the value of something, to assay something like you would assay or weigh gold in order to demonstrate its value, to put something to the proof, to put it to the test, and it even means, in some instances, it has the concept of, of um, training. And I think that's part of this whole concept, that God has left these nations in, uh, these various peoples to live in the land in order to train 
Israel to test them. Now, as a result of that, last week I started the doctrine of testing, and I've already had two or three questions which indicate that even though it seems like I've spent a lot of time talking about testing and suffering over the last uh, couple of years, I'm still amazed at how some people really haven't heard what I've been saying. Or maybe I just haven't said it clear enough, so I'm going to try to back up a little bit and say it a little more clearly. The trouble is that many, uh, many have come out of various backgrounds. I don't know where you've come from. Some have come from religious backgrounds. Some have come from non-religious backgrounds. But there's some sense in which we, we pick up this idea that a test is something that is serious. That a test is some kind of major problem or major calamity that comes across in our life. Some sort of major disaster or intensified suffering or perhaps some unforeseen obstacle that suddenly rears itself in our path. And so we hear, whenever talk about testing or suffering, what I discover is that what people are really hearing is that this is what you do. You know, and sometimes it's conveyed in the term that I use sometimes problem-solving devices, that I use these things when I have some problem in my life, some difficulty. Now, if that is your concept of testing and suffering and problem-solving, not only have you misunderstood most of what I have said, um, by the time you finally engage any of the solutions, you have failed so desperately and so tragically that it will take you years to recover. A test, as I defined it last time, let's go back and review the definition because I crafted it very carefully. A test is any situation in life, and I define that further as saying any Everyday, mundane situation, from the mundane to the extreme, whether it's pleasant, whether it involves prosperity, whether it is an unpleasant or adverse situation, it's any situation in life that engages your volition. Ninety percent of the time that we need to use our problem-solving devices, most of you probably aren't even thinking there's a problem has to do with very mundane things like just sorting out your priorities for the day and what, how you're going to spend your time and what you're going to think about when there's nothing pressing on you. Are you going to be thinking in terms of doctrine or not? What are you daydreaming about? Is, are your daydreams related to doctrinal priorities? You know, just simple things, how you spend your money, how you manage your money, whether or not you stay out of debt, whether or not you are uh, getting yourself into hock for the next six months so that you are not free financially to uh, support the Lord's work, to get engage in your priestly responsibility of giving, uh, whether it involves... A pastor once told me, wise advice, that if you cannot disengage from your obligations within two months to go where the Lord seems to be directing you, then you are enslaved to things you should not be involved with. And I think that's true, because that destroys, in a large part, because that destroys your flexibility before the Lord and opportunity to do things. And I find that most people are failing in the test because we think of tests in terms of these major crises in life, and the real issues in life where the real battles are fought are the day-to-day mundane decisions as to what's my priority today. Am I going to put the Lord first or not? Am I going to put doctrine first or not? Am I going to arrange my schedule so that I'm going to make it to Bible class tonight? Or am I going to let ultimately unimportant issues keep me from being in Bible class? Uh, Parenting decisions are also part of this. Your, Your philosophy of parenting. 
how you uh, lead in the home. Uh, husbands, how you, uh, the decisions you make on a day-to-day basis in relationship to loving your wife. Wives, the decisions you make on a day-to-day basis in terms of following the leadership uh, of your husband. Those are the tests that really determine the focus of our lives. It is not how we respond to the fact that we wake up one day and we've lost our job and, and, uh, some, and the bank uh, closed and we don't have any money or the stock market crashed and everything's gone. You know, if you're not practicing the stress busters on a day-to-day basis in terms of the simple, mundane decisions that you think have very little consequences beyond the next hour, then you will not be prepared to utilize the stress busters on the major crises of life. That's why I call them spiritual skills, because a skill is developed by consistent, habitual practice. It's not practice that makes perfect, it's perfect practice that makes perfect. And you need to be practicing confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, claiming promises, doctrinal orientation on a day-to-day basis because that is what builds those blocks in our spiritual fortress that strengthens our lives, produces edification, and leads to spiritual maturity. And if you're not doing that on a day-to-day basis, then you, will, you are just following a prescription for disaster. Back to our definition. A test is any situation in life when the believer has the option of choosing between applying doctrine or using his own resources to solve the problem. And that just starts off with anything. It's how we spend our time. It may involve how you spend your leisure time, how you spend your money. I find that how people spend their time and their money says more about what their priorities are than anything else in life. But then I'm getting a little too convicting this morning, so maybe we need to move on. Now, this is what's going on in Israel. Now, the thing I want you to understand, and I want to point out here, and the reason I'm taking time away from a verse-by-verse exegesis here of, of Judges, is to set a framework in our minds so that we can understand not only what's going on in Israel in terms of God's plans and purposes and testing why He does things the way He does, but this is going to set up a, a, um, a hinge for helping us move, or a transition to help us move from what was going on uh, 3,000 years ago, plus, about 3,500 years ago, and what is going on in your life today. Just because this happened with a bunch of people who dressed funny and talked differently and lived in a different culture in a different time and didn't have the technology we have, doesn't mean that the basic issues are any different. And what I'm trying to help you understand is that these aren't simply stories about people and events. This isn't just history, but there is meaning to this. Now, those of you who are involved downstairs teaching kids, we were talking the other night. We had a meeting with uh, some of us just giving kind of an uh, overview of what goes on with teaching. We're talking about some things that we need to add to the curriculum. And one of the options was Bible heroes. One of the biggest problems that parents and Sunday school teachers make is they teach Bible stories in and of themselves. So what? Noah built an ark. Why? 
you know, Samson, all the things in Samson's life, and he tore down the temple and he died. Why? You know, David slew Goliath. Why? Why is that important? See, the issue isn't simply telling the stories, but why are they significant? What does this teach? Why is this in the Bible? God just isn't telling us a lot of history, a lot of stories, a lot of uh, what may be to some people interesting and not quite so interesting to other people, events in the history of Israel. They have a purpose and a significance to teach eternal truths that are as relevant for that period as today. And that's why these things are taught. And when you are a teacher downstairs and you're teaching, I find that that in the Old Testament you have doctrine lived out in the flesh and blood of people's lives and that those doctrinal principles are explicated and developed in the New Testament. And I find that it's very helpful, especially with kids, that when you are teaching them, and this applies to parents because, remember, it's the father's responsibility to bring up the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Most fathers want to advocate that to the wife instead of assuming their responsibilities as a male spiritual leader in the home, which is, uh, you know what? That's what we're, one of the things we're going to discover is a symptom of pagan thought. That is a, that's exactly what happened in Israel. The men began to abdicate their role of spiritual leadership, and so the women had to step into the vacuum. And that is not God's intended order and priority. And uh, the mistake that most people make and most parents make is they expect the church to be the trainer of their children. They ex- the husbands expect the wives to do it. And uh, somehow it never gets accomplished, and then the kids grow up, and you wonder why they don't care about spiritual things because it was never made a priority. And a lot of people sort of numb themselves to it as a priority by saying, well, I take them to church on Sunday morning and they go to Sunday school and maybe once in a while you read a Bible story to them and that's, you know, that assuages your little guilt complex about training your kids and it really hasn't done a thing. It has to be a priority. Remember the model, Mosaic Law is not a mandate for today. You know me well enough to know that. But it is a model, and there are principles and patterns there that we need to pay attention to. And God told the Jewish uh, nation that if they were going to have doctrine perpetuated in their culture, then the parents were responsible to teach the children continuously throughout the day. You go to passages in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 6, and you read those passages, and it talks about how the law of the Lord is taught when they're standing up and when they're sitting down. Now, the only thing that's left out there is when you're lying down. Supposedly you're asleep and you can't teach them. Standing up and sitting down encompasses everything in life. In other words, whatever you're doing in life, morning, noon, uh, day in, day out, and it's not the formal type of teaching where parents sit down with their kids and they uh, give them 15-minute little, we're going to have our daily devotional right now, and we're going to read through five or six verses and talk about it and pray, and then that's, we've done our little nod to God for the day. It is that you as a parent are involved in doing exactly what God's doing to Israel in this passage. You are, you are to nasa your children. You are to train them. You are to test and evaluate them. It is your job and no one else's job to prepare them to be a successful adult. And as a believer, you define success in terms of being prepared spiritually to go out in the world and make decisions from a position of strength and not on the basis of the sin nature. Now, of course, your 
wonderful little children that you adore so much have sin natures, and at some point they can exercise that independent of your authority and go negative to the Word, and that's not your fault, and you can't browbeat yourself for the rest of your life over failure. What you need to pay attention to, though, as parents, is what you are doing, especially between ages 1 through 12. I think that if you haven't won the battle by age 13, you're in serious trouble, and you're going to just really wonder what hit you when that kid hits puberty. And uh, God trained Israel, and that's your responsibility as a parent, is to train your children. And that involves a lot of thought. It involves a lot of uh, planning on your part as a parent. And that's what God told Israel to do, is that you are to train your children. That means that whatever you're doing in life, you stop and you say, okay, let's have a little test. Johnny, what doctrine applies here? What do you think God wants me to do? How do we know that? Give me a passage of Scripture. Of course, the reason most parents don't do that is because most parents can't do that. They don't do it in their own lives because they don't know enough doctrine to do it. And that's ex- but that's what the biblical pattern is. We teach in life situations, as you go through life, if you're engaged in whatever it is you're engaged in doing with your children, you, um, you prepare them. You ask them questions like that so that you're engaging their mind in learning how to uh, look at life, look at the situations and decisions they have to make. And any decision is a problem. Any decision is a problem. Now, I'm defining problem not as something, some adverse situation, but like a math problem. It is something that needs to be solved, a, a decision that needs to be addressed. And so as you go through life, the best time to teach your kids is when they're young and to make this kind of practice a habit in their lives and in their thinking so that when they are older, they have been trained by it. Now, they may go through periods of rebellion when they get older, trying to figure out who they are what they want. But Proverbs says, and it's a general rule of thumb, that as long as you train up your kid in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, that's a proverb. It's not a promise. You know the difference. I've tried to teach that. Promise means that you can count it 100% sure. Proverb is it's just generally true. It's not absolutely true because that kid has their own volition and they can um, be negative to the Lord. I, I had some seminary professors in uh, seminary that are known, well-known throughout the Christian community and throughout the world, and they had children that were not believers. They had, I know one man who had four or five children and two of them were not believers. And to this day, they are not believers. Most people have heard of a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Barnhouse was one of the greatest Bible teachers of his generation. I think he died in the 60s. One of the greatest proponents of New Age mysticism and New Age garbage in the Dallas area is his youngest daughter, Tiffany Barnhouse, who's a professor at SMU. And... uh, So just because you are a parent who uh, teaches your kids well, and you can be a success as a parent and have your children go negative to doctrine. Don't use that as an excuse to blame. Success, we need to understand some things about success as God measures it. Success as God measures it is your faithfulness to the Word, not the results. We live in a culture that defines success in terms of results. But you can't always guarantee results. That's why when I first came as a pastor, I warned the congregation. I said, be careful of false expectations or unrealistic expectations. When you have a new pastor or 
uh, you go to a new job or any kind of change, you always have, we all do this, it's, I think it's typical of, of uh, human nature, we have unrealistic expectations sometimes, especially in a small church in a rural area like we are, it's typical sometimes to think, well, we'll get a new pastor and maybe things will be different and we'll grow a little bit, because we all want that, not because we're impressed by numbers, but because it would just be nice to have a few more people and realize that uh, we were having an outreach and impact on the community. And I warn people against that. We live in a pagan age. We live in an age of negative volition. And we live in an age when uh, you can do everything right like Noah did and not have a single convert. Same thing can happen as a parent. You can do everything right as a parent so they'll have a child that rejects doctrine and goes into rebellion. But the issue is not what they do with it eventually. The issue is between you and the Lord your priorities, and what you have done as a parent before the Lord in terms of instilling and inculcating Bible doctrine into your kids. And that's done both through your, your example and how you demonstrate that doctrine is the number one priority in your life and how you teach it and explain it to your kids. And I think parenting is one of the biggest tests that some of you are facing in life right now. is just trying to keep your priorities right there and remember that as a parent, that is, uh, next to learning doctrine in your own spiritual life, your highest priority. And your job as a parent is to train that child in doctrine. And that that takes second place to nothing else. Not your job, not your career, not your hopes, not your dreams. That's your self, self-absorption and arrogance. It, your job is to train that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and that responsibility primarily falls upon the dads. Okay, a test is any situation in life, and for the most part I think you understand by now that that involves day-to-day decisions. It involves um, uh, finances. It involves your various responsibilities. It involves your performance in your job responsibilities. You are to do your job as unto the Lord, not as unto man. You are to do it not as man-pleasers, Colossians 3 teaches. That means that you are to work as if your boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means there is no excuse for doing anything less than giving about 150% to doing the best you can because how you perform on the job and your priorities and your attitudes towards work is part of your testimony, not only before men but also before God. And it has always made me somewhat bilious to when I hear people say, well... When I hire somebody to do a job, I always make sure I hire a Jehovah's Witness. I've heard that from at least 20 people in my life. Because they, are, they really do a good job. They're honest. They have integrity. They're trying to work their way to heaven. Of course they do. You know? but, but that's a big thing with, with some cult groups is they so pound that into their people that uh, I've heard several people say, you know, I, w- I want to try to find a tradesman who... Uh, who's in one of these groups, because I know that they will do a better job than anybody else. And I've also heard Christians who say the last person they want to do a job is somebody who's a believer. And that's sad. I have one friend of mine who was an uh, elder at a church I attended many years ago, and he said, you know, as soon as I find out somebody I'm doing business with is is a Christian, I immediately start getting nervous. Isn't that a sad testimony? This was a very mature believer. 
but his experience is that as soon as some Christian finds out that he's doing business with another Christian, it's like some excuse to be sloppy or cut him some slack or, or not be as honest or not work as hard because, you know, we're in the family, so that's okay. He'll understand. Whatever it is, it's, it's amazing how many believers fail to understand that one major test in your life is that you work as unto the Lord and your work ethic is a serious part of your Christian testimony. So these are just some of the everyday mundane tests that we all face and we have to decide on a day-to-day basis whether or not we're going to apply doctrine. So a test is any situation in life when the believer has the option of choosing. Volition is the issue in life. You are what your decisions have made you. And the same thing is true about your children. That's why it is so important for you parents to be emphasizing personal responsibility with your children and why there ought to be uh, serious and immediate consequences. Of course, the punishment ought to fit the, the crime. But there ought to be serious and immediate consequences to any level of disobedience because you need to teach your children discipline and you need to teach them priorities. And that the issue in life is volition. I heard a wonderful interview. I was driving down to New York this last week and channel surfing, and I heard an interview. I don't even know who it was. And it was on a Christian radio show, which normally I don't like. But this lady was talking about training your children to be debt-free and training them in finances. And she was, you know, a measure of genius is that somebody agrees with you. So this woman was a genius. I have always thought that parents produce a lot of financial failure in their children because they're afraid to give them any financial responsibility before they leave the home. This woman was talking about the fact that when a child is 11 or 12 years of, old, years of age, you ought to have them in a, in a uh, uh, savings account. They ought to have a checkbook. You ought, and she suggested, I thought it was an interesting idea. I'm not promoting any of this, by the way. I'm just using this as an illustration. She um, uh, said you ought to give, your, instead of giving them an allowance, everybody learns an allowance. Give them a salary. And tell them what that salary's for. You know that... As a parent, you used to pay for their food and hamburgers and snacks and, and maybe some school supplies. When they're 11 or 12, you start off with just some general things. You may keep control of money for their haircuts and, and clothes and things like that. But you give them, okay, I'm going to give you $200 a month I spend on this stuff for you or 100 or whatever your budget allows you to figure out what you spend on your kids. And I'm going to give that to you. That's your salary for the month. Now, they had rules, certain rules that you, you had to put so much into a savings account. You had to put so, give so much to the local church. You know, when you're a child, you can put them under legalism. Because um, you're training them. You're giving them some, some uh, priorities. And they had to plan out a budget for that money. What are your responsibilities? So, you know, the first time you do that, you give a kid 100 bucks, and that's supposed to last him a month. He may spend it all the first week. She said the hardest thing is you don't bail them out. You make them go the rest of the month without any money. Next month, they'll be more careful. I've always thought that parents ought to be giving their kids... The first time I got a checkbook was the day I, before I left to go to college. It took me years to figure out how to balance a checkbook. I'm convinced parents ought to give their kids a checkbook when they're 10 years old. Now, you control it. You, at first, you ought, you know, if you give it to them when they're 15, maybe you ought to co-sign every check. But you begin teaching them and training them how to handle their money... 
so that when, uh, kids today, uh, even I, I found out even I knew this was true about college kids, but even high school kids are being targeted by uh, the credit card companies. And debt is a and staying in debt, and, there, and of course the goal of credit card companies is to get you head over heels in debt and keep you there because that's how they make their money. But that is going to destroy their future and bankrupt them, and all kinds of problems. And so parents need to train their kids to do that and to teach them the discipline and let them suffer the consequences of spending all their money the first week and not having any money for the next three weeks and let them suffer, let them go without, let them not be able to go to movies or have any entertainment or do whatever it is they do. That's just part of training. But that's something parents need to be involved in because your job is to prepare your kids so that when they're 18, they don't need you anymore, period. That's your job. And that they can be a successful adult and engage in adult decisions without asking you. Now, ideally, they're still going to ask you and they're still going to need you and all of those things. But your job is to work yourself out of a job. And that's the goal of parents, is to train children to be productive, functioning adults. And that means you have to teach them discipline, you have to teach them priorities, you have to teach them the doctrines, number one, and you have to model that in your own life. And that's probably the number one reason that there's parental failure in all these areas, is because most adults, especially if they came up in the baby boom generation, don't know how to do that because they rejected the whole concept of discipline 30 or 40 years ago. And I lay that at the foot. The World War II generation did many wonderful things in terms of, of providing our freedoms uh, and victory in World War II. And I got the opportunity on the recent vacation to uh, walk the beaches of Normandy and go to Omaha Beach and the American Cemetery there and places that I have studied about for years in all the battles and enjoyed it very much. And I think I almost think that that's the kind of thing that is uh, required of any American citizen before they vote. Now, I made that comment to one person, and they said, well, yeah, well, maybe that'd be good, because then we wouldn't fight wars anymore. I said, no, you totally missed the point. The point is, you walk the beaches of Normandy to discover what freedom cost. That people have died for the freedoms we have today, and so you don't treat them lightly or give them away. And... Uh, I think the World War II generation did wonderful things, but after the war they bought into, for the most part, the parenting philosophy of Dr. Spock, and uh, they did not teach discipline and authority orientation to the next generation. And then that generation, which is my generation, grew up, and because they had, had rejected authority and rejected discipline, they didn't, do the, they didn't teach any discipline to their children. Now, those children are in their 20s and 30s, and they're raising up spoiled, self-absorbed brats who are dependent upon everybody else for their happiness and have no sense of discipline and no sense of priority. And that involves some of you, I think. And it all goes back to the fact that we are, that is part of the fourth generation curse that's described in Scripture. The only thing that breaks that is doctrine and volition. And for you to decide as a parent that you are going to start applying doctrine as a parent and making the training of your child a high priority and making doctrine a high priority for them. Which brings me to another point that came up the other day. When I was six or seven years old, and from that point on, I always sat in Bible class. We did not have this option of 
kids not going to church. There was no junior church. There was no prep school. There was nothing for us to do. From the age of six, you had to be in church. You had to sit still. And I've heard that there are people, parents, who actually use it as an excuse. The reason they don't come to church on Wednesday night to Bible class is because there's nothing for their kid. Yeah, there is something for their kid. It's called Bible class. You bring them with you and you sit them in the pew and let them sit there for an hour and at least absorb it by osmosis. When I was six or seven, I didn't care. I just leaned my head on my dad's shoulder and went to sleep. And I did that until I was about 11 or 12, and then all of a sudden one day I heard something. I thought, well, I think I'm going to pay attention. And after that, I started paying attention. But if you sit there and say, well, you know, my kids can't sit still for an hour or an hour and 15 minutes, guess whose fault that is? That's not their fault. That's your fault. The reason you're not in Bible class is because you're failing as a parent. And you need to be in Bible class. And the greatest thing that you parents can do for your kids is to demonstrate that doctrine is a number one priority in your life. And when you make decisions about where you're going to be on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night, it's in Bible class. And that's going to mean more to them over the long run than getting them involved in sports, getting them involved in music lessons, getting them involved in karate or whatever it is. Not that those things are wrong. It's a matter of priorities. That's the test. That's the number one test most of us fail at most of the time, is we talk one thing and we do something else. But the greatest thing you can, the greatest gift you can give your kids is to demonstrate to them that your relationship with God is more important than anything else, especially things that you love. And we all have to make that decision at times. One of the greatest loves in my life is to stay home on Sunday morning, read the New York Times, and listen to opera. Guess what? I don't ever get to do that. Doctrine is more important than anything else in life. Okay, I think I have communicated what testing is all about. Point number two. Tests are the opportunities to demonstrate... What we have learned, or to demonstrate the doctrine we have learned and assimilated into our soul. A test is the opportunity to demonstrate what the doctrine that we have learned and assimilated into our own soul. That test, we wake up in the morning, we have to make a decision about how we're going to spend our time that day. Guess what? That's an opportunity for us to look at the, the, the plan for the day and say, okay, how does this relate to spiritual priorities? What the Bible says my responsibilities are as a husband, as a father, as an employee. What are my responsibilities in terms of learning doctrine today? What comes first? What is it that... And we all have many things. One of the hardest things, I think, for people in our culture today is the distractions that are available. There are probably 10,000 more distractions available for you today than were available to our parents or our grandparents. Everything from vacation, vacation homes, we have prosperity. As a nation, we are going through prosperity testing. Now, you may say, well, I missed the boat. <clears throat> but we are. We have access to incredible labor-saving devices, from computers to microwaves to um, televisions to whatever it might be, all kinds of things, the automobiles that we drive that give us a tremendous amount of free time that our parents never had. 
And yet what we do with that free time is squander it on entertainment, on other things that we do, rather than focusing on... When, when other generations didn't have all those distractions, it was real easy when all they had was a horse and buggy and they lived over here on Amos Lake to get to Bible class at night. Because you didn't have the option of going to a movie somewhere else. You didn't even know what a movie was. So because we have all of these distractions, it's real easy to, to get involved in things that are good, they're wonderful, they're enjoyable. The older I get, the more I realize that many of the things I like, I love to ski. I've been up here two winters now, and I haven't even seen a ski slope. And I'm beginning to discover that that's because... Wonderful as it is, as much fun as I have, there are other things in my life now that are higher priority, and that just has to go by the wayside. There are many wonderful things in life like that, and we have to put our focus on what has eternal significance. So tests are the opportunities for us to demonstrate the doctrine we've learned in Bible class and that we've assimilated into our own soul. Point number three. Tests may originate from one of three sources. Tests may originate from one of three sources, and these are the three enemies to the spiritual life. They are the devil and the demons. Now, most of us are not under direct attack, and even if we are, you don't know it, the solution is still the same. The second enemy is the cosmic system. And the cosmic system has to do with a way of thinking that is antagonistic to and in opposition to the Word of God and Bible doctrine. And all of us have grown up in the cosmic system. You were trained by the cosmic system. And third, we have an internal enemy, which is a sin nature. And your sin nature gravitates like iron to a magnet to cosmic thinking. So from the day you came out of the womb, you started learning cosmic thought. And that's why spiritual life is so difficult is because by the time we become believers and start learning doctrine, we have let our thinking become entrenched in human viewpoint, cosmic thinking, and paganism. Now, the thing that we're going to see to set up our analogy and analysis in Judges is that God has left an internal enemy in Israel. They have the land. So we're going to just scope it out, something like this. They have the land of Israel that God has given them, and in that land there are various hostile enemy forces that have been left alone so that they can continue to provide situations for Israel to make decisions. They're going to be a source of, inf- of negative influence on Israel from inside. Now, who are these nations? They're listed in verse 3. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon and they were for, verse 4, they were for testing. You have some others listed down in verse 5, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. With the exception of the Philistines, with the exception of the Philistines, when we go through Judges, we're going to see that there are seven different cycles where Israel comes under an 
external oppression from a foreign enemy. Guess what? Those foreign enemies aren't listed here in verses 3 and 5. Those are the internal enemies. You don't find the Midianites listed there. You don't find the Amalekites listed there. You don't find these external enemies listed there. What this builds for us is an illustration that just as Israel had to deal with internal enemies that tested them, they also had to deal with external enemies. This is analogous to the fact that the believer has to deal with an internal enemy of the sin nature, which is the source of testing. And we are also oppressed by a hostile thought form which is called worldliness or cosmic thinking. And when we are disobedient to the Lord and we make a decision to be influenced by our sin nature, then the result is cosmic thinking invades our soul and dominates our thinking and leads us to making bad decisions from a position of weakness and the result of that is self-destruction in reversionism. And the only solution is confession of sin and then learning doctrine and in our lives. But this is what we're going to see in Israel. They have these internal enemies that are going to influence them. Just as the sin nature influences you, the sin nature is not the source of sin. The sin nature produces sin, but the source of sin is your volition. The sin nature simply influences you. You have volition to go positive or negative to God's Word. The sin nature sits out here in the in the um, DNA of our bodies that pervades everything in our lives. And the sin nature says, maybe there's an external circumstance. Okay, there's an external circumstance that puts some sort of pressure on us. And the sin nature says, oh, I have the perfect solution to help resolve this external pressure and offers that solution to our, our volition. Our volition is either going to go positive to the sin nature or it's going to reject the sin nature and go positive to doctrine. That's the test. So the real issue in every single test boils down to whether or not you're going to let the sin nature rule. That's why Paul addresses it in Romans 6, that we're not to be slaves to the sin nature. That whenever we follow the sin nature, we enslave ourselves to the sin nature. And once we go negative to doctrine, and positive to the sin nature. At that point, we come under the control of the sin nature, and we're either going to produce personal sins from our area of weakness, or we're going to produce human good from our position of strength. And since I've spent a lot of time talking and addressing you parents this morning, let me encourage you with something that you need to do to help yourself a little bit. You need to analyze your kids in terms of the trends of their sin nature. Some of you have one child that has a sin nature trend that is toward antinomianism and personal sin. They may be strong-willed rebel. Then you have another child. And that child is just as sweet and good as he can be. He does everything you want him to do. This kid's operating on human good, and he's just as out of line as the other kid. But he's got you buffaloed. And if you can't figure that kid out and deal with him in terms of his self-righteous legalism you're guaranteeing just as much failure as the lack of discipline on the one who majors in personal sin. 
just a little extra added insight. That's one thing you ought to do. Really break down everything I've taught you on the sin nature and then use that to get a better understanding of the behavior patterns in your children. And once you do that, then you ought to be able, under the wisdom of some doctrine that you've learned, to be able to train them a little more effectively. Because what works for one kid doesn't work for another kid. Everyone is different. They have different personalities and they have different sin natures. And you need to deal with them on an individual basis. Some kids, you need to take the belt out and you need to have a little private session with that kid every day. Other kids, all you have to do is look like you're thinking about that and they straighten right up. So you just have to, as a parent, you have to have some wisdom and some flexibility and do some good analysis on your kids. And um, some of you really need to work on that a lot more because uh, your kids are not as calm and disciplined as they ought to be. And I say that because over the last 25 years, both as a teacher before I ever went to seminary and as a pastor, I think this is the greatest failure among most Christians is that they don't discipline their kids enough. Most parents think they're too tough on their kids and the reality is they're not tough enough. And we need to build discipline into our kids. That's the only place. I say this over and over again. The, the key to success in life is authority orientation and self-discipline. And the only place they're going to learn that is from you as a parent. And if you don't teach it to them, you are almost guaranteeing failure in their life. One of the greatest things my dad did for me when I was a kid was my dad was a Marine. He was a first wave at Iwo Jima. And he got two Purple Hearts, a Bronze Star and a Silver Star, in about 24 hours. And uh, I was always very proud of my dad. And, and I remember when I was a kid, he still has, had his Marine uniform hanging up in the hall closet and still had uh, two or three things left over from the war, including his K-Bar knife that he had carried with him on Iwo Jima. And I just loved that knife. And he told me that I could have it. Back in those days in elementary school, they would rate you on a number of character qualities, including self-discipline, with a check, plus, or minus rating system. And he told me I had to go three six-week grading periods in a row with a plus in self-discipline. That took me to the sixth grade before I got that. I don't know, I always thought that in elementary school they had, a, they had sort of a, a negative deficit. You started off as a minus and you had to earn your way up to a plus. Because after sixth grade, I, I didn't change any. In seventh grade, I never got anything less than an E in, in conduct. You know, e was the highest you could get. In elementary school down in Houston, they graded you on conduct from, from A, B, C, D, and F. And I always got a C in conduct. I didn't change any when I went to junior high, but I always got an E in conduct. never got anything less than that after the seventh grade. So I always thought that in elementary school, you started with a deficit and had to earn your way up. And maybe in junior high, they just start, you started off at the top, and you had to do something to lose it. I don't know. But my dad taught me the importance of self-discipline through that little lesson. And I think that's something that, that parents need to do. Third point on testing is testing may originate from any of the sources. An external source is the devil or the cosmic system, and that those are thought forms. We are constantly living in enemy territory. And I know that when Dan was here, he developed uh, 
the soul fortress analogy a little more in the sense that over here is the kingdom of God, that's our heaven, and here we're on earth. The only way to get over here in a perfect environment is to die or be raptured, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. While we are on the earth, we are in enemy territory, continuously. The only way to survive in enemy territory where we are being attacked day in and day out is to develop some sort of defense. And that defense is our soul fortress, which we build one doctrine at a time, one element at a time, as we learn doctrine and apply it to our lives. Now, as we erect that soul fortress through the use of the stress busters, we can exercise negative volition in which case we're living outside of our soul fortress and we're trying to solve problems and live life on our own resources. The only way back in is through 1 John 1.9. And when we get out here, outside of that soul fortress, and we're in enemy territory, we're walking around with a target on our back. Every one of us. And as the, the amount of time that we spend outside that soul fortress is the amount of time that we're producing human good and personal sin, and that ultimately leads to failure at the judgment seat of Christ and the loss of rewards. It also is a way to guarantee failure and misery in this life. So the solution is constantly to get back inside the soul fortress and then to apply all of the stress busters so that we can continue to grow. <coughs> Fourth point. Tests may be the result of our own bad decisions. Sometimes we just make bad decisions from our sin nature and they create worse scenarios and worse situations and develop negative consequences and then we have more problems. Now, it doesn't matter how badly you have failed. It doesn't matter how terrible the decisions have been in your life. As long as God is there and you are alive there is still hope for recovery. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9 and we have Scriptures. You can always recover. That's what grace is all about. God is not going to punish us in terms of making life, uh, the spiritual life irretrievable simply because we have failed for a number of years. But always remember, just because there is grace doesn't mean you get off scot-free. Bad decisions limit future options. Just because you can say, oh, I can sin and I can get away with it, or maybe the Lord won't punish me too badly, doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. And those consequences may be with you for the rest of your life. Well, that takes us down to point number four, and we will have to pick up and finish that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace that You have provided everything for us, and You have given us the information we need in order to live in a hostile uh, cosmic system under the rulership of the devil, and that you have given us the resources we need to counteract the enemy within our sin nature, and that all of this is based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that he provided everything by virtue of his substitutionary sacrifice on Golgotha. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal destiny and uncertain of 
of uh, their salvation that right now they would make the most important decision in their life. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. In order to appropriate that, in order to have eternal salvation, all you have to do is accept that as a free gift. You do that by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't need to change your life. You don't need to make a deal with God. You don't need to bargain with God. There are no strings attached. It's a free gift of salvation that is based exclusively on who God is and what Christ has done and not on anything we do. All you have to do is accept that free gift. Father, we pray for those who are believers here that we would be challenged by the things that we have studied this morning that we might be encouraged to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.